0: hi friends and welcome to a slightly delayed episode 10 of the query show my sincere apologies i was traveling and not managing my time particularly well and also thought somehow i could record in a hotel room but then it turned out they were like jackhammers so anyway i appreciate your patience But this also means that those of you waiting for my 10-page class coming out on the Patreon, you get a bonus week to sign up because I'm running behind. So you have until February 19th to join our Patreon and get access to my special first 10 pages class, which is going to be really cool. But enough about that. Today we're looking at two middle grade queries, one from Debbie and one from Chris, which is exciting because I love doing middle grade, even though I find it really, really difficult to write. Personally, I admire people who do it. So anyway, uh, we're going to get started with Debbie. So let's dive in. Okay, so query number one from Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. I'll read the whole thing and then give you notes. Dear agent, Sunday Night Earthquake is set in the near future when the big one rocks San Francisco during a nationally televised Sunday night baseball game, forcing 12-year-old Giants fan Maddie to team up with a rival fan and a lost dog to find their way home through a broken city. It's San Andreas the movie for middle graders, starring a kick-ass girl and an equally opinionated boy. Maddie and her mom go to the ballpark together, but mom is at the garlic fries stand when the earthquake hits and is among the missing. Maddie has to return to her house on the peninsula to reach her fearful puppy, left home alone. Mari, a 13-year-old Dodger fan who Maddie rescues during the quake, is separated from his dad and desperate to get back to L.A. When they realize trains aren't running, the kids set out to walk down Caltrain tracks. An aftershock in a tunnel reminds them of the horror they cannot escape. Hours after the earthquake and in the heat of an argument, Mari lets it slip why he and his dad were sitting in front of Maddie and her mom at the ballpark, a revelation that forces Maddie to confront her family's racist past. It's a night of secrets and choices set on shaky ground. The 1906 San Francisco earthquake has inspired many excellent historical novels for kids, including most recently Stacy Lee's Outrun the Moon and Kate Messner's Ranger in Time, Escape from the Great Earthquake. Yet there is a dearth of contemporary middle-grade earthquake novels. Sunday Night Earthquake, complete at 40,000 words, fills that void with a survival story that appeals to a diverse range of readers. I am a children's book reviewer and short story judge for a newspaper, as well as a contributor to a radio station. I've written about earthquakes and kids for another publication. My writers group of many years includes members who have won Newbery Honors, a National Book Award, the Caldecott Medal, and other awards and honors. Thank you for considering my work. I look forward to hearing from you. Sweet. All right, back to the top. So we learn about Sunday Night Earthquake, set during a Sunday night baseball game with Giants fan Maddie and a broken city. So the high concept is pretty dang cool, I love the unusual juxtaposition of a baseball game and a giant earthquake. And I love a girl protagonist who loves sports. The big issue with this as the first paragraph is that it just doesn't immerse itself in the story enough. The phrase, Sunday night earthquake is set, is not only passive voice but also just a little general. You want to open with a bang for a story that is this big and literally explosive. But more generally, this is just a summary paragraph, the kind that should generally go after the plot description. So I'd revise the phrasing to something more active, then cut it here and move it later, or possibly cut it entirely. It depends on how the query takes shape. Finally, one small note, it's kind of borderline, but I'm not sure the word kick-ass is necessarily appropriate for middle grade. At the publishing level, that's a house-to-house decision, but I might keep it out of the query just in case. Now we get to the second paragraph, with the earthquake and meeting Maury and escaping down the Caltrain tracks. So this second paragraph dives nicely into the plot proper. I think this paragraph would work much better as the opening. All the author would have to do is add some of the identifying details from the current first paragraph, make sure Maddie is described as 12-year-old Maddie, and specifying which ballpark they're visiting, that kind of thing. Now here we also get a nice clear statement of Maddie's goal, to get back to her puppy. But that said, I wonder about her mom. What does it mean that her mom is among the missing? Is someone telling her she's missing or she's just guessing? So why isn't Maddie looking for her mom then? Is Maddie presuming she's dead? Basically, it's just hard to understand Maddie's motivation to prioritize the dog unless we have a clear sense of why pursuing mom isn't an option. Now, as for Mari, why is he separated from his dad? Was his dad also among the missing in the quake? And if so, the same questions apply. Does he just assume his dad is dead and wants to get home to someone else? Now, we do have a nice when X, then Y structure here, which is obviously one of my favorites because I bring it up all the time. But the last sentence, an aftershock in a tunnel reminds them of the horror they cannot escape, is just standing by itself. It doesn't tie into the rest of the paragraph with a cause and effect. How is it upping the stakes? That's what I need to know. If it's just reminding the characters of something, that's not an amp-up, it's a reminder. So I think the author can either use this fact as more of a pinch point or just cut this sentence. If the aftershock does something like, say, compress their window of opportunity to get home, that could help. Now we have the sense of the climax where Mari and Maddie have an argument and she learns about her family's past. So there's lots going on here. But my first question is about the timeline because this starts with hours after the earthquake. The previous two paragraphs had me thinking that this novel took place over several days because their walk probably isn't going to be a short one. So it's a little jarring to read that this happens just hours later. And I'm not even sure that it's necessary to specify how long it's been. I think this paragraph is a prime candidate for but when X, then Y type structure. A sentence like that is inherently stakes raising. But interrupts the status quo And that's what this revelation is doing. So that structure could work here. Now, the part about the family's racist past, I admit that threw me for a loop. It wasn't something I was expecting here, because we don't know what race or races Maddie and Mari are. I'm also having trouble understanding exactly what this revelation entails, like literally what's happening, and understanding it in terms of cause and effect. I'm not seeing the connection between what could be in the family's past and how this affects what's going on with her right now. But more to the point, I don't see how this revelation ties to Maddie's emotional arc. Why is learning about this particularly devastating to her? We can't know what this means to her unless we know her normal attitude about her family. If she loves her family and thinks they can do no wrong, that's one thing. But if she's a family outcast who resents her relatives, that's another. The writer can't let the reader assume what the emotional fallout from something like this will be. Attitudes are what make characters distinct. No two characters react to events in the same way. That's how stories happen and what makes them engaging. But we can't understand the significance of those reactions unless we know enough about the characters, which means knowing about their emotional arc. Right now, all we know about Maddie is that she loves baseball and loves her dog. So the writer needs to dig a little deeper on the hole in the heart that she has as a character, that emotional hurdle she's going to clear in the story. As for the last sentence that starts, it's a night of secrets, It's could be a more evocative verb phrase. Both the subject and the verb itself could be stronger and more specific. Maybe something like, their near impossible journey home becomes a night of secrets, dot, 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 becomes implies dynamism and transformation in a way that is doesn't. And now we get to the more meta paragraph about earthquake books for middle grade readers and the word count. You know, it's true. I can't really think of a contemporary earthquake novel with the exception of like those I survived books, which I'm not even sure are contemporary come to think of it. So that's a really good point. However, the way this paragraph starts, I assume this was a story set during the 1906 earthquake. So the author ought to tweak that phrasing a bit, perhaps something like, well, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake has been the backdrop for many middle grade novels. There are a few contemporary stories that da da Or even just dive in with, Sunday Night Earthquake is a contemporary earthquake novel that dot dot dot, just to avoid being confusing. Next we get the bio paragraph with all the writers' credits and a little info about their writing group. So they're great writing credentials here, and this author's even written about earthquakes, which is good to know because they're probably bringing some expertise and a research background to the book. However, I don't think there's any need to mention the credentials of the other writers in the writing group. It's certainly great that this writer has a chance to work with them and critique with them, but it doesn't really have any bearing on this writer's accomplishments. It's okay to keep the focus on you and you alone because it's your query, so it's your chance to shine. Thanks so much, Debbie. And now, query two from Chris. Dear Agent, when government agents recruit 13-year-old loner Jeffrey Dean for a secret time travel program, the overweight teen sees it as a chance to locate his birth parents while stopping his bloody visions of historical events. After he completes training in a government facility known only as Oblivion, Jeffrey joins the program's battle to prevent a terrorist organization, the Masters of Infinity, from manipulating the past in order to seize control of the present. Assigned to disrupt a 1938 coup attempt against FDR, Jeffrey arrives alone in the past, pump full of poison time travel serum. His challenge is to defeat time traveling mercenaries and foil the plot against FDR before the master's poison kills him. If Jeffrey can overcome his own self reliance and learn to work together with his support team in Oblivion and the allies he gains in 1938, he just might avert a fascist takeover of the timeline while uncovering the truth about his parents. Jeffrey Dean and the Destiny Matrix is a 56,000-word, upper-middle-grade science fiction novel with a diverse cast of characters. It is inspired by Anthony Horowitz's Alex Ryder series and the television series Timeless. This novel stands alone, but has series potential. I have a bachelor's degree in journalism and write light science fiction and horror for middle-grade and tween audiences. Unlike Jeffrey, I'm stuck in the present, living life one day at a time. Okay, so let's rewind time ha, huh, and go back to the beginning. So we learn about Jeffrey Dean getting recruited by government agents, his Bloody Visions, Oblivion, and the Masters of Infinity. So you have my attention with secret time travel because that sounds like a lot of fun. And I also admire people who write time travel books because the logical loop seemed dizzying to me. And there's a lot going on in this first paragraph. The author gets a ton of information into this first paragraph, which is great. This is a story with a big external plot apparatus, so kudos to the author for being concise here and getting it all in. That said, what I think is missing here is a little more about Jeffrey and these visions. The visions are clearly a big deal to him, but the way they're introduced in this side clause while stopping his bloody visions almost buries them. I'd suggest beginning the paragraph with a mention of those. Even in a plain old sentence like, 13-year-old Jeffrey Dean wants nothing more than to stop his bloody visions of historical events. Then the author could move on to, so when government agents recruit him, and the reader can already sense why Jeffrey would take them up on the offer. And this would also help answer the other question I had. Why him? Presumably because the government knows about his visions, but how do they? Or do they at all? So making the visions dominate the introduction to this paragraph will help there. And relatedly, a problem with a lot of middle grade adventure novels, I do have to wonder why is this program recruiting a 13-year-old? Yes, he has this ability to have visions, but he's still pretty young. Is this program designed specifically for teens? Now I'm sure there's willing suspension of disbelief here too. I'm not telling the author to change the plot entirely because it's middle grade and of course the protagonist is going to be middle grade age. But maybe just a hint more about the program would help here. Finally, one small note. 13 is a perfectly appropriate age for a middle grade protagonist, but I wouldn't refer to him as a teen. Then it sounds like it's going to be YA, and you don't want to throw the agent off as they're reading. Okay, so now we get to this coup attempt against FDR, poison time travel serum, the masters, the allies, Oblivion, it's all coming to a head. And it's super cool! But I do have a few questions. So, why is the serum poisoned? Are we to understand that the evil masters got to it before Oblivion noticed? In other words, I'm wondering whether the ticking clock of this poison was part of Oblivion's original plan, the good guys. Plot-wise, it's a great choice. It's a ticking clock. But I want to make sure that its presence is shown to be logical. So to that end, if the masters did poison the serum nefariously behind the scenes, I'd consider using a but-when sentence here. Something like, but when the masters get a hold of the time travel serum and poison it, Jeffrey will have to dot, dot, dot. That shows how the stakes are changing and getting amped up. And I like that we have this hint of emotional stakes here, too. Jeffrey has something internal to overcome, his self-reliance. Although I'm not quite sure self-reliance is quite the right word, it's a positive trait, generally speaking. I wonder if it's more that he needs to learn to trust others, i.e. learn to be vulnerable. I think that'd be a clearer way to phrase it. And overall, we need to know about this emotional wound earlier on if it's going to figure in this do or die moment. Somewhere in that first paragraph or early in the second, we should get a little information about how Jeffrey acts before the plot kicks into high gear. I'm talking personality here, what kind of kiddo he is, so we know where he starts and therefore can see how the change might affect him. And we have these allies. I'm intrigued. I think the author could stand to work in some mention of them. It doesn't have to be by name. It could be a kind of high-level archetype every time. Anyway, something like a crusty mechanic with a heart of gold, a plucky pilot, and a shy mathematician, or whatever they are. I have no idea if those kinds of characters would be useful in a time travel mission, but that's what I came up with. The Allies are important not just to the internal plot of preventing the coup, but also to Jeffrey's internal arc of learning to trust. So we should know a bit more about them. Now we get the title and the word count and a little bit about the inspiration. It's a very nicely done meta-paragraph. I'm kind of on the fence in general about whether it's necessary to specify upper middle grade in a query. And here, given the word count and the age of the protagonist, I think it speaks for itself as upper middle grade. But I don't think there's any real harm in leaving it there. Just a personal reflection. It's not like you're saying middle grade slash YA, because that's not a thing. Also, the author might consider tweaking those inspiration titles and pushing them a bit more towards proper comp titles, especially because the Alex Ryder series seems to skew a little bit older than this book, but I admit that I have not read them. Then we have a short and sweet bio paragraph, just two sentences, talking about how unlike Jeffrey, this writer is stuck in the present, living life one day at a time, which I love. It's short and sweet, good info about the author, and just a little flourish at the end. Thanks so much, Chris. my friends is our slightly belated 10th episode. 10 whole weeks. It's really thrilling. Again, I highly encourage you to go to the Patreon and look at the 10 pages class that I'm working up. I think it's going to be really useful. And it's one of those things that I wish I could sit down and say to everyone individually, but it would take a lot of time. So it's a lot easier to present it as a video. Also, I'm starting a new thing where I write encouraging postcards to all the patrons because I realize that, again, I love cheering people on. And I feel like sometimes when you're querying, you feel very alone and like no one's rooting for your book, but maybe you. So if you join as a patron, I will send you a postcard that says, congratulations, welcome to querying. And then as you get requests, maybe even sign with an agent, they'll keep coming. You can also head to our website, see all the past episodes and submit your own query for the show. That's thequeryshow.com. Very easy to remember. I'm always looking for queries in a variety of genres, so don't hesitate to send. It might take me a while at this point because I'm getting a huge queue, which is fantastic, but I definitely still want them to keep coming. And if you like the show, tell your friends. Tweet about it, send them an email, I don't know, Snapchat it. It's really great to have people reach out to their networks and share because it's really cool to see you guys liking it. And I'm going to record some new bonus episodes this weekend, hopefully, because I'm taking a little writing retreat with my friend Amy. And her book comes out in the fall. It's called Emmy and the Key of Code, and it's delightful middle grade. The plan is we'll talk a little about the submission process and also maybe read some of our own old queries, which will be embarrassing, but also very funny. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you'll get to hear those. I'm sorry in advance. All right. Until next week, stay querying.